Hi, friends. Before we dive into today's episode, I wanted to let you know that if you like what we talk about here on the Belonging Podcast, I think you'll really love my book. It's called Root and Ritual, Timeless Ways to Connect to Land, Lineage, Community, and the Self. And it is available right now wherever books are sold. It is a beautifully illustrated guide to connecting with the earth, your ancestors, and your communities as you come home to your whole self. Though we live in a radically different looking world, the needs of our bodies and spirits are the same as the ancestors we come from. I divide this book into four parts, land, lineage, community, and self, and I take you on a journey for engaging more deeply with your life. I provide stories from my own life and I share rituals, recipes, and ancestral wisdom, journal prompts to support you on your individual and unique and sacred path. You can get more info and bonuses at rootandritualbook.com and pick it up at your favorite bookstore online or in person. Thanks for all your support. It means the world to me. Welcome to Belonging, a podcast that explores how to come home to yourself in the age of loneliness. I'm Becca Piastrelli, your host and guide on a journey of courageous reconnection. As we explore topics like ancestral wisdom, cultivating meaningful sisterhood, living with the seasons and cycles of the earth and your body, and what it means to be a good ancestor. Hello, and welcome back to Belonging, the podcast. It's Becca Piastrelli here. So, so excited to share today's conversation with you with a wise and powerful elder in the conscious dying movement, the one and only Jerry Grace Lyons. So I feel like it's important to share how this whole conversation came about, which is to say back in November, I think of 2018, I got my adulting on and consulted lawyers for creating a trust and living will with Tim, my husband and partner. And in that process, I realized a part of this was, was saying what I wanted to do in my death, in the case of my death. Well, that's what the whole thing was about. In case of infirmity, as it's delicately put, where does, where does our, um, where do our assets go? Who gets what, um, how, who do I want making the decisions about medical things, about financial things? It was confronting (laughs) because I I just thought, oh, I'm doing responsible adult thing. And I go into my lawyer's office and I realize, oh, I'm actually unprepared to answer these questions. So I went home and called um, a friend up who told me, oh, you can make a death plan just like you can make a birth plan. And it can be, you know, I'm relatively young. I'm in my early thirties, you know, it can evolve over time, but it's something that everyone should, and I use that word sparingly, should think about because death is coming for us all. And we don't know when, and we hope it's not very soon, but it's not anything anyone has escaped quite yet. So I started thinking about how I wanted my body and my memory to be honored And I started 
thinking about, oh, do I want to go back to the earth? Do I want, do, how much uh, do I want to think about um, the environmental impact of my death? How much ceremony do I want to be involved? How do I want my body to be tended to? And of course, taking it from an ancestral perspective, I had taken Lara Valeda Vesta, who we had an amazing episode with, um, her ancestral connection course. And she had asked us to look into the ways my ancestors worked with and honored their dead, just, which is a very important rite of passage, just like birth, just like marriage, just like giving birth, just like having, getting your first moon blood, just like, you know, no longer bleeding. These are important rites of passage and death is a big one, right? Death is a huge one. And I've been traveling to the lands of my ancestors and seeing a lot of um, Neolithic tombs to honor people's dead. That's of course what the pyramids of Giza were, but there are these, and there are these huge cairns, these huge places of honoring for the bones and possessions of ancestors, particularly in Europe. There were two that were really powerful for me. One in New, at Newgrange, which I've talked about, and one recently, also talked about that I saw recently called Polnabrone. And I realized, oh, my ancestors for tens of thousands of years have been very present to the death of their people and honoring them and p- giving them safe passage into what is to come next, which is the great mystery. And it's only in recent human history that there has been a severing, there has been a disconnection, a fear of death that has really, I feel, been damaging to our ability to process grief, our ability to live life fully, our ability to be there for our community when death comes, whenever it is. And then I have to do this living will and think about what I want to do in the case of my death. And at the same time, my parents were also arranging for their deaths. And I watched the ways in which they were engaging with it in kind of a, well, we don't want to be a burden to our children kind of way. And feeling like I wanted more for them or did I want more for me? (laughs) And the ways I didn't feel like I've honored my grandparents in their dying or as much as I wanted to or had access to really growing up fearing death, still fearing death. So I came across Jerry Grace at Lyons and her, her group Final Passages, and she had a death midwifery course, not a death doula course, which I've never, I've always respected and think is really powerful, really helping people greet the death experience, being in the dying. I was interested in what happens after death comes. So I joined her level one and level two courses that were all about greeting death and then home funerals and body care, including knowing what our rights are as human beings. And it's, it blasted me open and I shared a lot of it on Instagram. And I tell you, my DMs were blowing up and had some really powerful conversations with people just by sharing like, here I am painting a cremation casket. Here I am learning how to wash a body and anoint it with oils and just seeing what it awakened in so many and probably 
triggered some with grief, trauma, or aversion, fear, superstition around death. So it's a very activating conversation. And Jerry Grace came to this work of being a death educator and death midwife later in life with the death of one of her good friends, which she shares on today's episode, and is feels compelled with this mission to help us all remember how to care for a dead and that we have autonomy in the ways we want to honor and be with the dead so that we can greet our own death with a bit more of a consciousness. So Jerry Grace Lyons is a minister, author, death educator, and midwife. She founded the nonprofit Final Passages in 1995 to inform people about conscious dying, natural death care rights and practicalities, little known funeral options, green burial, and the benefits of bringing funerals back into the home and family care. She has also created and developed a three-tiered certificate program in the field of conscious dying, spiritual midwifery, home funeral guidance, and green burial called Honoring Life's Final Passage. So this is a really important interview. Jerry Grace has a lot to share. She really is someone who embodies aliveness and compassion and witnessing and sisterhood while also being immersed in this conversation around death. It's amazing how embracing death can bring a deeper awareness of what life is and can be. I hope you enjoy it and I'm sure questions will come up and I welcome them. We can have the conversation on Instagram or in the comments on belongingpodcast.com. So I present to you Jerry Grace Lyons. You know, it's just about getting more comfortable talking about it. And that's what I try to do is just normalize it by, by just sharing um, how beautiful also it can be, how much beauty and grace and honoring and what a difference that makes when people actually participate in that event. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that was one of the first things that was experienced from my friend Carolyn when she died so suddenly that us going through, there's a number of us that went through that experience of caring for her body, preparing her and making her look beautiful and, and the visiting and the saying goodbye to her that one of the, one of the things we talked about as we met in the future weeks preparing for her memorial is how much, Fear had diminished for us mm. At, around death, that there wasn't anything to be afraid of touching a body, just the whole idea of it. I mean, she looked so peaceful, and yeah. we had that sense of peace from, from being with her that we realized whatever we had imagined or whatever images media had created in this or stories just faded away. It just wasn't real. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, I've pressed record and that was a beautiful way to begin, <laughs> which was just the, the, tr- the real nature of this work and what we're talking about. So Jerry Grace, thank you so much for being on belonging here with me. Um, for people who are listening, Jerry Grace is the 
founder and director of Final Passages. Uh, she runs a death midwifery and home funeral guide training program that I took a part of and continue to and will finish up at some point that really profoundly shifted my relationship with death. And I shared a lot about this on Instagram and I got a lot of questions, including where can I take this course? So I said, okay, I'm not going to answer these questions. I'm going to have Jerry Grace on and we're going to have this conversation because I find people are really craving it and really fearing it. We're talking about the fear at the same time. And so let's just, let's have it because death, I think that's one of the first things you said at the beginning of the course was death is the thing we all have in common. Like it's coming for all of us. No one has figured out how to cheat death yet. Not a single human being. So uh, it's an inevitable thing for all of us. And um, as someone who brings ancestral framing to my life, thinking about how our ancestors uh, way, way back used to be more in a more intimate relationship with death. I mean, your partner, Mark, uh, it was like there were living rooms for the living and there were parlors for the dead. And I went, oh my gosh, right. We had death. We had the dead in our homes. We touched our dead. We cared for our dead. We buried our dead. We burned our dead. So how can we come back to that intimate relationship with going back through the portal where birth is on the other side? So long-winded intro, just to say thank you so much for your time. And I'd love to know how you got into, you have a beautiful story of how you got into this work because it's not like you were born into a lineage. It came to you. Right. It was, I guess, in a, in a sense, and thank you, Becca, for having me on today. It was, in a sense, a calling and a prayer, an answer to a prayer. I had been in Hawaii years before, like maybe seven years prior to my path opening to me. And I went to what was called a puja ceremony. I was just curious and people had told me about this beautiful ceremony at San Marcos Sanctuary. And so my, I had my daughter with me. We went together and um, there was a huge crystal that had come over from Arkansas been brought over to uh, the island of Kauai and brought to this temple. And uh, we were all asked to, if we wanted, to go up to the crystal and just speak our heart, speak our prayer for whatever we wanted. And I remember walking up there and my prayer was that I find a path or work or service of some kind that would fulfill my heart and my soul, that it would be something that would be helpful to others and, um, and to myself. Um, so I guess, in essence, right livelihood is what I was looking for, a way to make a living, but have it be something that served humanity. And that was my prayer. It was very simple. And then I kind of just left and went on with my life, came back to the job I had at the time. And um, there were a lot of shifts in my life, but the death of my friend in 1994 is the big shift. That was the one that was the answer to my prayer. I didn't know it in the moment, but 
she was a Reiki master and a nurse and by day went to work caring for an older woman. And then in the evenings and weekends, she would do some alternative types of healing work. One of them was Reiki. And I had taken Reiki classes, but I had never had the opportunity to practice what I had learned in the class. And then somebody told me about her class and actually her name kept coming back to me for different reasons from different places. And finally, I said, well, I need to meet this woman. So I called her and she said, yeah, we, we have a Reiki class every week. And um, you're welcome to, it's not really a class, it's a support group. And you can just come and share Reiki with each, we receive, we give Reiki and therefore practice. So I started going to her group and I went every week because as soon as I met her, I felt like I had known her all my life. She was just, we made fast friends, and uh, it, it was just wonderful. So I kept going back and practicing. And Carolyn would talk about her life and her work as a nurse and, and other things. And one day she went to take care of this older woman and said she wasn't feeling well after work, after uh, breakfast, excuse me. And um, they called 911, and the paramedics came as quick as they could. And they worked on her, but she ended up dying right then. And and she was only 57, 56 years old, pardon me, 56. She was about to turn 57 a month later. And in fact, we had the memorial service on, I believe, on her birthday when she would have turned 57. And of course, one of the great gifts she gave us is that the, uh, when she was brought to the hospital, they looked through her wallet and they found a card that said, in the event of my death, call Norma Wilcox in San Francisco. That was a very close friend of hers who was um, also a nurse. And she, Norma, it turns out, was Carolyn's durable power of attorney for health care and the executor of her will. And so she was the one Carolyn had asked if she would take care of her in the event of her death. And of course, Norma didn't think that would be for a very long time. But here, here we were. This, this is why I say to people, we just never know what's going to happen. Who knew Carolyn would die at 56 when she seemed so vibrant and so alive and so, you know, she was such a social creature and so warm and and uh, energetic, and uh, she did have a history of asthma and was under doctor care for that. And I guess this may be something she ate at breakfast, who knows, but in any case, she was under doctor care, so that doctor was able to fill out a death certificate stating cause of death, um, otherwise she would have had an autopsy. So Norma, when she found out what had happened, she formed a, a phone tree and uh, called some people in our area that knew her. And by the end of the day, the news had spread to her whole community of friends. And we met that evening at her house. That's when we met Norma, who drove up from San Francisco. And Norma said, we're going to bring Carolyn home. And we were all further shocked. We were already in shock over Carolyn's death, but now we are finding out that the plan was to bring her body home. 
which we did not know you could do. Uh, we didn't know it was something that was legal. And that's, that was the beginning of me discovering that people have the right to care for their own dead in their own home. Uh, so the next day, we brought her home from the hospital and began care of her by simply washing her body like you would give somebody a bed bath, by anointing her with essential therapeutic grade essential oils, and by dressing her in something very ceremonial, surrounding her body with gardenias, which she had written out instructions, her favorite flowers, her favorite music, all these things. So we, we outlined her whole body with gardenias, put on her favorite music, People began to come by to pay their last respects, um, say goodbye to her. We had ceremony in her living room that night with her body laid out in the middle of the living room on a futon. We all sat around her, uh, went around telling stories about how we knew her. We drummed, we rattled, we, we read Carolyn's poetry so we did ceremony in the way we knew Carolyn would really have loved and appreciated it. And that's what she wanted. And it felt so right to all of us to do it. So that was the beginning. It was opening me, initiating me into a whole new life, a new path. I didn't know it in that moment, but my eyes were wide open. And so was my heart. This was an experience I had never had before, and it was so beautiful, intimate, meaningful, felt so right, felt so natural. And so then we continued to meet every week to plan out her memorial on her birthday, and that's, as I had said earlier, when we talked about how our fears were really diminished and around death. And also how much we wanted to share this experience that we all had with other people and let them know, hey, you don't have to just have somebody taken away in an hour or two after they die by a mortuary or a people coming in with a gurney and wheeling your loved one away and out the door and this person you love so much is now gone and there's this major empty space in your house and in your heart and you don't know what to do and how to begin to grieve. So with the person's body there, this process of caring for their body, this, this is ancient way. This is the way we all used to take care of our own. And what we also learned is this process helps people begin the grieving begin the grieving process. It's touching them with loving hands when our heart is so tender. It's caring for them in a, in a very honoring and dignified way. It's blessing them and being blessed with this ceremony that it just feels so immense. There's so much love that fills the room. I can't begin to, it's hard to explain to people uh, when they haven't actually experienced it. But if they've been at a birth, that's very similar. The feeling is very similar. Um, it's just this grand opening uh, 
and some people feel the room fills with spirit or God or whatever they believe in, and if nothing else, just with love, lots of it. So that's that was the beginning. I just wanted to go out and tell everybody. Hmm. This is amazing. <laughs> hmm. So then you became a death midwife and you offer this service now, this home funeral guide service. So what does that mean? What do you offer folks who call you and say, dad's just died? Yeah. Well, of course it took a year and a half after Carolyn's death before I even called a group of people to my home to uh, talk about how we could go out and share this experience and guide people the way that Norma came up and helped us through this ceremony with Carolyn. Because being a nurse, we sort of took her lead and plus Carolyn had asked her to be her person guiding. So we began to meet in my living room and met every week for almost a year. Um, But in the meantime, we went and told people that we wanted to help others. And um, I had met Karen Leonard, who had started the Redwood Funeral Society, and she started referring some of her members to us. Uh, We also went to our local hospices, and they started referring people to us. Because we were, when we embarked on this, we were just wanting to learn how to do this. So we were just asking for donation. Um, We didn't really know what we were doing exactly, but we just wanted to give people the same opportunity that we had. So once uh, I began to do this and learn more about it, then I could start offering it to more and more people. We started the Natural Death Care Project, which later turned into our nonprofit called Final Passages. And then as an individual practitioner, I go out and I guide families through what we call a family-directed home funeral. And the term home funeral was something that I coined with my friend uh, Janelle. We co-authored a guidebook on uh, how to create a home funeral, and we decided to call it a home funeral in that book because modern terms were needed to explain what it is we were doing. And it's somewhat synonymous with a wake or a vigil. Uh, People are familiar with those terms. So when people call me and ask me to guide them or if I can help them with their service at home, I explain to them that as a guide, I will help them prepare their loved one's body by a, a ceremonial washing using essential oils in the water, saying some blessings uh, or readings. If the family wants to do that, they're welcome. The washing is, like I said earlier, just like a bed bath, but it's a very thorough washing so that all odors are wiped away. There's a, a sense of purifying the spirit and a release of, you know, attachments that uh, might keep their spirit from being able to move on into the next life. And people can say whatever they want, and they're using, I'll hand them the washcloth, and they'll begin to do the washing and realize, oh, this is just simply washing their body in in a very beautiful and tender and loving way. 
And then um, once we've thoroughly washed them, anointed them with oils, then they choose whatever clothes they want to dress them in or wrap them just in shroud, which is just beautiful material. They can do that. And then we say that they're uh, lying in honor or lying mm-hmm. in grace. Mm-hmm. And then um, we have them laid out in whatever room they want to place them in. It could be the living room. It could be a bedroom or whatever space that feels right for them in their own home. And then I will attend to helping them complete all the necessary documents, the death certificate, disposition permit in California, various paperwork that has to be completed and filed with our county office. And they can continue to have as many or few ceremonies as they want in their own home. It can be an open house where people drop in to visit, or it can be specific ceremonies where everybody gathers at a certain time and they have music, they have singing, they have prayers, however they want to do it. And they can do as many of them or none of them. That's the beauty of doing it in your own home is that you have complete freedom to honor this person and their life in whatever way feels right to the family or friends. It's beautiful because they can also decide how long they want to keep them at home. Once paperwork is filed, which could take up to a day or two, and especially if it's a weekend because offices are closed on the weekends, so um, then, then the wake would be a little bit longer, we preserve the body using dry eyes. So the body remains looking very good. Generally speaking, they um, might become a bit pale. The family can apply makeup or not. But, you know, it's okay to look dead when you're dead. You know, people think that you're going to look horrible. But really, what people have been finding, and I've helped well over 400 families now to uh, have family-directed home funerals, is that the person usually looks very serene and leaves them with a very peaceful feeling. I think people most fear that the person's going to look terrible and they're going to decompose in front of their eyes. And that is a very slow happening. That's, it, it isn't like that. People look pretty darn beautiful, <laughs> I have to say. Often have a bit of a smile on their face. Um, families are always pointing that out to us. Look, they're smiling. And I go, yeah, because you've given them so much Uh, loving care here and they're appreciating it and they're happy that you're taking care of them Um, so they look at peace and that's the that's that smile that look of peace people often miss when the person's taken away really quickly so that makes me sad and that's what I'm trying to share with people you know is that there's something really precious they're missing besides that process of Those three days uh, really help people process that the person has really died, that that something big has changed. And yeah, by the third day, their body looks more like the shell that carried the spirit of that person. Uh, it, It feels more like the spirit has left. And that helps ready them to release the physical body. So instead of feeling 
that they've been ripped out of their heart, they're coming to the, the understanding, the acceptance that that person has really died, and it is time to let go of the physical being. Yeah, I think that in particular really struck me when we were going through the training together because as I was saying before we were recording, I came to the training without a lot of experience of human death. I've never actually have never seen a dead body of a human being and haven't had that experience in my family. When my grandparents died, it was all away from me. I didn't even, there was just memorials or no memorials. And 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 yet I feel, I, f- I felt a little robbed. I felt a little cheated. Like, like I haven't still even fully processed that my grandmother is gone, you know? And I feel like she could still potentially be in Ohio listening to classical music, eating ice cream. And so there's something... And I've also seen dear friends lose parents and deal with it in the way that they deal with it, but often feeling like they didn't have enough space or guidance in their grief. So that's what struck me most about this home funeral process that you guide us through and you guide families through. That's the other beautiful thing is that it's family directed, that you are a guide, you are not some sort of person running the show and that each one you do is very different and that there is sacredness in each family doing it in the way that feels most reverential, most honoring, most healing for their grief, for honoring the, the life, the embodied life of this human being. And yeah, when you said that makes me sad about bodies just being taken away, I think I'd love to hear more about this because there's that tension I feel kind of angry, actually, about how in a moment of deep grief, whether a death is sudden or gradual, a family is given one or two options that are usually very expensive, move really quick, and oftentimes are very ecologically damaging. And so I'd love to talk about that more because it feels manipulative and also like a severing from our own from our birthrights as human beings on this earth. So like a loved one dies, right? And then they're told what usually? Well, generally people know to just call the closest mortuary. Yeah. When somebody dies and they don't really they're in shock so they don't even think about the possibly it would make sense to shop around. (laughs) So they just call the one that's most local to them. And that might be the most expensive place. You could call somebody um, a mortuary an hour away and find out it's half the price. People often aren't at all prepared for a death and the cost, the high cost of death in this Mm. country. Um, You know, with cremations running probably average around 3,000 and, and burials eight to 10,000 people have no idea that they're going to be faced with these huge costs after already spending a lot of money, sometimes half their savings or all of their savings on medical bills. Mm -hmm. And now suddenly they're faced with this huge cost. They thought they were going to bury mom at the local cemetery and find out it's going to be another 10,000. Or that's just average. If they want something 
nicer than average, um, it could be easily 20,000. So it's, it's really helpful to, to have an education uh, because once they walk into a funeral home, uh, they're presented with all kinds of options and their mind isn't real clear. They're in grief. And so they're thinking about how much they love the person rather than whether they can afford it or not, uh, or whether it's necessary or not, or whether it's something they even want. They're just, you know, given all these options and they're having to make these choices in this very deep grief that they're in. And they often choose very expensive things that, because again, they're equating this, the spending of money with how much they love the person. And that's what makes that bill just rise really high. So they're often, you know, told about the caskets or shown caskets in a room. And they're the most expensive ones. The ones that are less expensive are hidden away, perhaps in a storage room somewhere. Most people aren't going to say, oh, do you have anything less expensive? Or do you have a, how about if we just, put mom in a cardboard cremation casket or something like that, um, if they even knew those existed. And yet our families love decorating them. They love uh, painting them up and placing their loved one in it because it's so personal then. They'll put handprints all over and write notes to them and paste photographs on them and make it very personalized. Yeah, you had us uh, decorate a cardboard cremation casket during our training and I found it we didn't even know who was going in it and yet it felt so cathartic it felt so beautiful it felt like a a really wonderful way to channel like create creativity and emotion that come with the connection between life and death which is sacred right and our, our our culture is so scared so separated from death and even sickness, because sickness reminds us that death could be on the other side of that. And so in that moment, when a death happens and a mortuary is, is, is in that situation of, of profiting and also to helping the family, that resistance to death, that feels like a fog, you know, it feels like a severing, makes it so that you have tunnel vision and the whole experience can be rich and beautiful and, and joyful even in the grief. Completely, yes. And it does bring, people are hesitant to say how much fun they had decorating the casket. Yeah. The truth is that everybody gets into it and, and starts painting and loving it and thinking about the person. What it really does is keep them connected to the person who died. It keeps them very connected to the whole process. So they're focused on the person's death and what they meant to them in their life. And so they're able to express, this is why we call it a form of art therapy. They're able to express their, their love for the person through their notes they're writing or whatever they're placing on the box or in the box with them. Could be notes, letters, flyers, uh, Pictures, just people put stuffed animals in there, um, many different things, as long as they're biodegradable, because you did ask about 
ecology. And we're thinking these days much more green, much more earth-friendly. How can we make our last uh, statement on earth be one that's also earth-friendly, a kiss to the earth? And for us, if it's burial we're talking about, then it would be a green burial, meaning no longer embalming the body, which is putting toxic chemicals into them, uh, no longer putting a cement vault in the ground, which just holds the casket in it and keeps uh, the earth from shifting, and uh, also uh, makes it so they can mow the lawn if it's a lawn cemetery, so that the earth doesn't drop down, and rather than just add more earth to it and tamp it down occasionally, they want to keep it all level. So that uh, vault being put in the ground is to keep the ground from sinking when the casket breaks down. However, there's, it's said that there's a, enough cement put in the ground from burials every year to build a two-lane highway from San Francisco to Tucson, Arizona. And that's a huge amount of cement put into our earth, which it does not need. Um, so no cement vaults or plastic liners is the other thing they're using now, plastic or cement. And uh, not even uh, metal caskets, which they say enough metal caskets are put into the ground to rebuild the Golden Gate Bridge every year. So mm -hmm. people are placed in the ground either in just a shroud meaning wrapped in material, or they're put in a biodegradable casket, which could be made out of banana leaf or uh, seagrass or willow or wicker or even paper mache, even a cardboard cremation casket. All of those things are biodegradable, break down very quickly. Even a pine box breaks down fairly quickly uh, rather than the precious woods uh, the rare woods that we have from, um, you know, from the jungles, which take hundreds of years to grow back. So all of those things in a green burial are dispensed with. Plus, you're not having to water a lawn because it's often done in a forested area. So it's natural. So there's no uh, water being used. There's no pesticides, herbicides lawnmower fuel being used, all these things we don't think about um, that are being used for every burial. So now we can dispense with all those. And as far as cremation goes, people are being cremated in, usually in a combustible cardboard box, but we also ask that they put things in the box that are also combustible and not going to put toxins in the air. And unless the crematorium has been outfitted with uh, scrubbers, more recent uh, state-of-the-art machines, the mercury from our amalgam fillings are going out into the atmosphere. So if they have those scrubbers, that captures the mercury. But now we're looking at even more green ways to dispose of our physical beings. Uh, one of them is composting. And there was a bill just recently passed in the state of Washington that will allow people to have their bodies composted and uh, return to the earth after that point. And so that's just a huge step forward. Uh, a lot of people over the years have said, I just want to be in the compost heap. 
well, <laughs> you know, it has to be done properly, and there's going to be buildings with um, composting material that will help the body break down quickly and yet be biodegradable completely. Um, another thing coming down the pike is um, they're calling it either water cremation or aquamation. It's, it's uh, alkaline hydrolysis is the technical term, and it is using water, steam, heat, pressure, lye in a big stainless steel drum with the body. Then it goes through this process where the body is reduced to a, a light brown liquid and some bone fragments that can be returned to the family. The water is at the end is considered uh, very safe, can be placed on fields, but it isn't going to be going down the drain like our blood when it's uh, when we're being embalmed and they drain the blood out of the body and that where's that going? You know, it's uh, that's very toxic. Um, who knows what kind of things are in? I don't even want to say all the things in our the pathogens in our body, but um, it isn't a real safe process. And uh, actually, they say embalmers die younger in, a, in, in their fifties on average because of breathing all the toxic fumes that are in the, the formaldehyde and things that have been used in the fluids that are placed in the body. So anyway, that's a lot of information. Thank you. Thank you for all of that. The whole way I found myself to actually was, was uh, my partner Tim and I were creating our living will and our whole plan. And when I realized our lawyer said like, do you have any memorial plans or anything like that? And I thought, Oh, I can make a death plan. So I started Googling green burial uh -huh. on grandmother Google. And I had learned about this body composting project. And I, and I knew, I knew I wanted my body to go back to the earth. That feels like a very spiritual experience to like feed the earth with my bones and my organs. And I got really fascinated with the high nitrogen levels of basically you, your, your body becomes this like sludge that is so high in nitrogen that it feeds the soil in such beautiful ways. And I just thought, okay, I don't know where I could do this. And then all of a sudden, grandmother Google served up your name <laughs> and your services. And that's how I found your course. Um, but I think there's a lot of curiosity about different ways of doing burial or cremation. And it's very exciting what's happening but I think the key here is to think about your death before you die. And that, that is something, that's a process you had us go through in the course where you had us think about what we need, we, what we want to do before we die, like who to make amends with, what we want, like, like uh, bucket list items and looking back, back through our life, but also how we want to die, how we want to be, memorialized how we want to be honored how we what you know everything from i'm thinking everything about like what scents i want in the room and what i want people to read and i very recently came across this woman i'll put a link in the show notes who's weaving willow caskets but she's also weaving willow bassinets and she calls them vessels for passage in and out which i think are so beautiful so think Thinking about death, making a death plan, just like a pregnant mother would make a birth plan, 
is so important. And I'm just picking up on the collective cringe that's happening right now with the idea of thinking about your own death (laughs) and how much that brings up. And you held us so beautifully in that of like emotions that will come up and we can breathe and we're still alive. And if there, if, if this is an important thing for you, if you're listening and you're feeling the tingles and to really think about it and write it down. So yeah. What can you say about creating a death plan? Well, there's a lot that goes into that, but it's something that can be a work in progress. (laughs) You can begin. And I would say do begin. Don't, Don't feel that you have to know all the pieces and parts to begin with. Just begin by saying, what are your favorite flowers? What are, what is your favorite? What's your playlist (laughs) for, for that moment? And that's what Carolyn did that made it so easy for us. She definitely made it clear that she wanted her friends to be the ones washing her. And that just felt so right to us. So, you know, think about, who would you want to care for your body? Um, do you want some strangers in a building to be hosing you down with a hose and, and all kinds of antiseptic stuff? Um, or do you want loving hands caring for you tenderly? And, you know, even if you want makeup, uh, if you want your uh, chin hairs plucked or your, you know, I mean, whatever it is. Maybe you even, my mom had an outfit all picked out that she wanted us to put in on her when she died. I always laughed about it because I'd look at that and say, mom, you changed your mind. You still want this pink kind of chiffon fluffy thing put on you because you're, you usually like such vibrant colors. And this is a, this was a, like a powder pink. And, uh, (laughs) and she said, nope, that's what I want. And, uh. And we laugh later because uh, we actually put something different on her while she was lying in honor. And then later we laid the pink outfit over the top of her. And when we went into the building and we were actually in the room where my mom was cremated, I wanted to watch the uh, man who runs the crematorium or cremations sweep all of her ashes and her bones um, and watched the whole process at the end. And as he was sweeping, these red sparks were going off in the, inside the chamber. There was just the sparklers that looked like a, a fireworks of red sparks. And I said, I said, Anthony, what is that? I've never seen that. And he said, Oh, you know, sometimes we see that when people have some synthetic clothes or something that were on the person. And I thought, ah, that's why mom had her pink powder <laughs> dress on. She wanted to go out with a bang or with sparklers. Yeah. She, she called herself Glitzy Rose. <laughs> and she was giving us that last sparkle. But, you know, that's, that's just an example of who knows what kind of surprise you'll get from what you write down. So, I think it's important to to say whether you'd like to be kept at home and for how long. Three days is an average time. People usually have a three-day wake. Around the world, that's an average time. Mm. People of all different religions and different cultures uh, believe that it takes three days for the body to fully process 
and close down. People think that when the heart stops and the breath stops, that's what death is. Well, it is in the clinical sense. That's what we declare as the moment of death. But I learned from Carolyn, uh, once we brought her body home from the morgue uh, that she had been in all night at the hospital, um, she had taught us to take our hand and scan over the top of the body, not, not touching it physically, but over the top of it to feel for any energy that might be coming from the body. That's part of learning Reiki. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we brought her home from the morgue and we took her out of the body bag, we started scanning her body by just um, taking our hand and passing it over the top of her. And we felt all this energy coming from her heart and from her head. And we knew then that the life force energy was still, it was still happening. It was, there was still a lot of that coming from her body. And so we knew that the body had not completely stopped and shut down. There was still energy things happening. So there was still life force energy. And I think people around the world have recognized this. And in fact, there's many, many stories of people who have been declared clinically dead and within an hour or even hours later have come back into their body and um, started breathing again. So, and they say they've even dug up caskets and seen scratch marks on the inside of caskets from ancient time. So, which is, which is, I think, part of, you know, it's part of people wanting to be sure that they are not going to come back into their body. And most don't, but there have been those few that do. Um, and so it, it's mostly to help us process that they have really died. Right. Uh, but there is things going on with them too. I call it a transition time. Um, And people around the world call it different things. In the Buddhist tradition, they call it the bardos. So it's it's kind of a life review. It's kind of a time for looking at you know our fears. Our this this is many people talk about this that that people are reviewing not just the highlights and the good things, but the things they've missed, the things they missed, the opportunities they missed to I don't know just forgiveness. uh, complimenting people, saying how much they love them, missed opportunities of love. So I, I don't know. It's the great mystery for sure. But one thing I did know for sure, and that that is that there was still life force energy going on with her body, and we were. And by the end of those three days, it was it had waned, and you know there wasn't that feeling at all. So it was gone. She was gone. Her spirit had fully finished whatever it was going to do. And uh, so creating your list um, is, is important. Like who do you want to, who might you think would want to uh, participate in this beautiful ceremony? And you could ask people, would you be one that would want to? It gives you an opportunity to start a conversation with somebody about death by saying, hey, I'm putting my, my death plan together and I wondered if you'd be somebody who would be would be willing to come and participate in in what way would you like to participate 
because this is what I want. And maybe you just want to help decorate my casket or, um, or maybe you want to wrap me in this beautiful shroud that I have. Maybe you want to have this experience. So it also helps you complete your advanced directive, which we encourage people to do. And that is, it, it says that that's a lot about, not, not just about after death, but if something happens to us in our life and we can no longer, uh, we're not capable of making decisions anymore, we want that very special person who can advocate for us in the way we would want that, we would want to be represented, that person can be our spokesperson and say, no, she didn't want a feeding tube, or only if it's temporary. That, you know, no, they didn't want to be resuscitated unless, you know, they're just choking or something like that, but not if they have some kind of diagnosis and uh, they don't want to keep being brought back if they're you know in a, in a position where bringing them back people don't even understand that being resuscitated can mean and usually does mean people pushing so hard on someone's chest that they can break ribs and that happened to one of our clients just recently her partner didn't realize that by calling 911 that the paramedics would come and break a number of her ribs, which made it just harder for her to breathe and actually was the beginning of her end. You know, six months later, she was gone. So, I mean, she was already quite ill, but it made it physically more difficult at the end. So the more we're educated about these things, the more we begin to think them through and saying, well, I only want to be you know, resuscitate if I'm choking on something that I ate, but not, um, you know, not in all situations, not if I've been diagnosed with something terminal, or if I'm in my 90s, I'm, you know, and I feel like I've, you know, done everything I could, or maybe I'm not able to even get to myself to the bathroom anymore. And I, you know, feel like I've lived a full life, and please don't you know, bring me back if I'm, if I've stopped breathing, I, you know, just let me go. So making a death plan makes us think a lot about our death and a lot about our life. And what people don't realize is that that can help someone feel free. It frees us to live our life more fully rather than the superstition that it's going to bring death on sooner. I think yes. That's a big myth in our culture, is that if we start thinking about death or focusing on it, it's going to bring it on. But right. just the opposite happens. It really frees us by having that plan set aside and knowing you're going to be well taken care of when you die in the way you want to be cared for. We're free then. We're free to, to go about our life. And we begin to realize how precious it is to tell each other, oh, wow, did I tell you today I love you? Did I tell you today how beautiful you look and how much you mean to me? And, you know, when you said that to me the other day, wow, it really sparked something in me. Those kinds of things. We begin to realize how important it is to say those things. Oh, your words remind me of um, two things that 
became really clear to me during the training with you. One is really looking at the Western medical community, not in a binary way of, of good or bad, but that the Western medical community is very much all about aliveness, about keeping the body alive no matter what. And that really struck me because uh, I can see how in a situation where a person is sick with cancer or a person um, you know, has, has an injury from like a car accident or something, and they're doing whatever it takes to keep this person alive, what it maybe doesn't allow for both that person and their loved ones is to accept that death is here and to enter into that ceremony, that rite of passage that we as humans all, it's our birthright to enter in and greet and honor the death process. If you're so focused on keeping them alive or what, and ribs are broken or feeding tubes are permanent or whatever it is, and uh, that can break that ceremony. And of course it's complicated, I understand. And sometimes life can be sustained and it can be worth it, but it's, it's an interesting perspective. The other thing that this brought up was the superstition you were talking about which is, um, I remember we talked about how the washing of the body is a really beautiful process because to touch our dead loved ones is really important in that connection process. And I myself, I remember this may be silly, but this is my connection to death is I remember when we put my cat to sleep, that's not what it is. My cat died. That's an interesting phrase. We, my cat died And I was in the room in the vet and my mom said, he's still warm. You can touch him. And I was so mad at her. How could you say that to me? And I think within me, there was a fear of the contagiousness of death and touching the dead. Mm. A very like um, subtle feeling. Mm -hmm. And you in your course shared photos of home funerals and videos, including your mother's beautiful Rose and of, of children touching their dead grandparents of, of the whole of hugging and kissing them, kissing them on the lips, like beautiful experiences of engaging in the bodily contact with the dead and how that can lift the veil of this superstition. That is death is come is contagious. Yeah. 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 Yeah, it's a very, I think we need that visceral experience of touching them, both because we immediately realize there's nothing to be afraid of. There's, they, you know, usually when I come over to help somebody prepare the body of their loved one, they're still warm. They still feel like their same grandmother or their same sister or whoever it was. And they're just washing them, uh, their face and hands so tenderly, you know, and it's, it's, it's all of it. They're just processing the whole thing. They're, they're realizing that they're not responding quite the same. So that's part of their, they're beginning to take it in on many levels. So their cells in their own body are receiving this information. Oh, they, they look alive still, or they look at just like they're sleeping, but they're not responding quite the same. And also thinking, well, this is not hard to do. This is something that feels so natural and right. And 
I don't know. It's just, uh, it just brings up something very, very ancient in us. I think our cells remember our ancestors and the way they did things. That's what I felt happened to me is like this, this felt like something that lived within me from ancient times, past lives, that I had done this before. And I think so many of us have, and that it just awakens that, which has gone to sleep and forgotten. And those cells go, oh, yeah, right. I remember this. This is, this is beautiful. This is special. This is honoring this reverence that we have for the person. It's, it so feels right and good and fulfilling. And children know this. I think children just innately know it. They just know it. I've had a six-year-old up on the bed with a washcloth washing his father's chest. So precious. So very precious to watch him do this. And I think kids just know that there's not, they're taught fear. If they're not taught fear, then it just seems natural to them to do this. I think we are so separated from death in this country. We just aren't exposed to, like the people of Bali, they walk down, and India, walking down the street, carrying the dead all the time. So it's nothing unusual. It's a part of life. It's all a part of life, death. So it makes us aware all the time that we're, we're born and we die. And um, what we do with each day is really our choice. And we can make the most of it or, you know, we can pretend that it's we're going to live forever. But it's, it's a great opportunity, really, to dive deep and to be with what those feelings bring up for us and how they make us more aware of what we're doing each day, each moment. Yes. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I, this conversation is so rich and so healing and I definitely feel the remembering in my cells. I feel the, the waking up of like the death midwives of my ancestry of my lineage. And, and I'm just beginning on this journey and I feel that it's an, it's knowledge and, wisdom I want to hold for my community and be able to serve because death is, is ever present. Death is ever present and it feels really important. So I'd love for you to share how there people are going to be so curious. So how can people learn more about your work and engage with this? Mm, Yeah. So we teach a course called honoring life's final passage. As you know, And it's four days. Well, if you take level one and two together, they're four days straight. Uh, You can just take level one and then come back and do level two later. Each one is uh, two days and one evening. The first two days are all about approaching death, dealing with our own fears and concerns about it, how we'd like to see our death unfold. Uh, We talk about what is conscious dying and how do we prepare both um, practically as well as physically, spiritually, emotionally, all of those things. 
the second two days are about the death and post-death care or natural death care and the home funeral, keeping someone at home and how we can do that. What are the legalities? How do we even think about getting someone out of a facility, a hospital, a convalescent home, a skilled nursing facility, and bring them home if possible? And then also all the uh, possibilities of disposition. We talk about the green burial, cremation, all these new things coming that we've spoken about, uh, aquamation and um, composting bodies. And then we have a third level, which is only given once a year and is coming up in just a couple weeks And that is where people get to role play all the way through, practice with consulting families, practice with what it would be like to go through a home funeral. We also bring in the whole element of grief, dealing with our own grief in life. Uh, We talk about, oh my gosh, so many different things, uh, multicultural ways of dealing with death. We talk about uh, infant death. We talk about mask death masks and making them um, different ways we can do ceremony and commemorate a death all of these things we cover a vast amount of material and that spans five days and then uh, our students who graduate also have an opportunity to come to do further work at our grad practicum and That's where we practice uh, getting up and talking in front of people, educating them about what they've learned, and also, you know, practice more body care in in, in many aspects. Uh, Also the paperwork, how to complete the the necessary paperwork. So we really... um, try to go very deep in and uh, we call it a you could call it a death immersion i suppose or an intensive so that people feel really prepared and to take this back to their community to share with people in their community and start perhaps start a support group in their own community and many of our students have done that and have support groups going in different areas so that's really exciting to us uh, that that people are carrying on. You mentioned you were talking about birth and birth plans and birth things. People often say to me, because my daughter's a birth midwife, oh, you too, you work at opposite ends of the spectrum. You cover all, both ends, they say, both ends of the spectrum. And and I always laugh and say, no, really, this is um, what we are is in um, the revolving door of the people coming and the people leaving. So um, she's greeting those coming in and I'm, and I'm fa- saying farewell to those who are leaving and helping the families do that. So really it's all the same. It's the threshold of birth and death, the comings and the goings. And they both should be honored in this most beautiful way and received with, with loving arms and, and dealt with in this compassionate, caring way. So I think we're just coming back to this ancient tradition of understanding that. Um, So people are welcome to come. We have a website. It's finalpassages.org. It will tell you all about our courses. Um, It'll tell you about our guidebook for creating home funerals. And we sometimes even teach an intro course that introduces people to the whole idea so they don't have to take this full immersion 
before they really know more about the home funeral option. So um, many ways to learn about it and uh, explore it for yourself. Yeah. And I should say it's, these are in person, the level one and level two was in person. Uh, but people were flying in literally from all over the world for it because I think that's one of your missions I really felt was it, with urgency was we have to spread this to every state, which has different legalities, every country and meet societies where they are, meet cultures where they are. And um, so, yes, this is something that is in Northern California where you're based. Um, and it's a beautiful experience, I have to say. I, I want, I'm wondering if for anyone who wants to just dip their toe in this water, if there's any books you recommend. Well, there's many books out besides our, our own guidebook of creating home funerals, which you can find on our website. Yeah, we'll link to it. Right. Yeah. So there's um, Final Rights that was written by Lisa Carlson and Josh Locum, uh, which has all the laws for home funerals throughout the country. And uh, updates can be found on Lisa's website. And she, but it was, I think it was done in 2010. So it's still mostly current mostly current. There's just a few states that have changed their laws, but most of them are very current. And she also, besides the laws, there's a lot about caring for your own in that. Uh, There's a new book by Lucinda Herring, and it's called Reimagining Death. And that is a lot about what we've been talking about today. And that just came out. And there's Nancy Poor's book, Living Into Dying. And that is P-O-E-R, Nancy Poor. So those are some of the books that would be very helpful for people wanting to read about home funeral. Well, not just the home funerals, but just, you know, conscious dying and so forth. I mean, there's many books on conscious dying, but most of them don't include that natural death care and the post-death, you know, that we're talking about today, but the ones I mentioned all do. And um, that's, we, we look at it as more holistic approach, not, not just preparing for our death, which is what I saw was missing. We're seeing this as, um, as a, a holistic approach, the, the conscious dying, preparing, thinking about our death, um, how we want it to, you know, we never know how we're going to die for sure, but it can't hurt to say what it is we want. Carolyn wrote in her instructions that she did not want an autopsy and she she didn't want to be turned over to a mortuary and all of these things. Well, as it turned out, I feel like in part, that's what helped things happen the way she wanted them to. It's just that she was clear in her mind and she wrote it out. And uh, the doctor was in fact willing to sign off um, saying that she had um, asthma. And you know, it's, it's, she really was a role model for us. She, she created a whole legacy where we could follow her wishes and really it, it was like a template for us. And then I took that and I just said, okay, I, you know, after a while I got that I was the messenger and I was carrying out that beautiful legacy that she left Uh, letting people know it's not hard. This doesn't take rocket science. This is something anybody can do. Wash the body of their loved one, lay them out, spend some time with them, 
And you have that freedom of spending time in the middle of the night if you want to go and sit beside them and wail or hold their hand or tell them you love them or say, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna miss you so much, or whatever it is, you're you're not separated from them. You're right there with them. And that just is so healing for people. There's so many healing benefits in the care of of someone at home, whether it's it's creating art projects. One family sewed uh, all the old lace pieces they found of their mother and put them together and laid it over the top of her as a little lace blanket. There's just so many different ways we can create to, to celebrate their life in their death. And that just fills us up with this very loving, caring feeling. And, and we're left knowing that we've done this beautiful beautiful ritual to honor them yes thank you so so much for doing this work for spreading it for teaching and sharing and for talking to me today Terry Grace I really honor you and see you in this and I'm so so grateful our paths crossed thank you Google (laughs) and uh, yeah thank you so much Terry Grace welcome you're welcome thank you so much for listening i know your time is sacred and i hope this episode infused some inspiration and meaning into your day for show notes links and references from this episode you can go to belongingpodcast.com also be sure to subscribe to belonging on apple podcasts and if you have a moment leave a review this helps my little podcast reach more listeners and i would be ever so grateful